Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Julius de Kempenar is the creator of Relative Rotation Graphs. RRGs, for short, enable investors to distill the relative strength of hundreds and even thousands of securities into a single picture. Be it individual stocks, sectors, or even entire indexes, RRGs enable a comparison that would otherwise take weeks to reproduce and be impossible to visualize. I talked to Julius about how this investment tool, a secret weapon in the armories of institutional investors across the globe, came to be. And like his career to date, it's an intriguing tale. Julius describes that gripping story from his time with the Dutch Air Force to heading up Rabobank's technical analysis in the early 2000s to his role on the trading floor with Kempen & Co. Julius talks passionately about relative rotation graphs and the benefits they offer investors, individual and institutional alike. And we finish our conversation by applying his methods to investigate the impact of seasonality on sector performance, revealing some fascinating results. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Julius. Great to have you with us. So uh, first of all, how's your week been so far? Oh, it's been pretty good. First week of the year, first real week of the year, I'd say. So um, basically quietly starting up, see if everything still is running, um, getting back into the groove, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, good. It's been been the same here. Actually quite a busy start to the year, uh, which is no bad thing. Um, no, that's not bad, especially not in these times. Exactly that. Um, okay, well, I want to get stuck into relative rotation graphs almost straight away. And then what we'll do is we'll circle back and uh, talk about your career to date after that. But first of all, relative rotation graphs are an investment tool used by some of the biggest asset managers in the world. So they're available on Bloomberg and the uh, Refinitiv Icon Terminals as well. So RRG is an acronym familiar with with most of the industry. So why do you think they resonated to such an extent? Ooh, um, I think... And that's from what I hear and from my own experience is because it, RRGs give those guys who are running very big and large portfolios and need to oversee large universes of securities, let's call it like that, mm. um, in one graph. So it, it gives them a, a very quick helicopter view of what they need to know. And from there on down, they can drill into more specific areas. But I think the biggest advantage is um, the way RRG visualizes what's going on in an entire universe, which is always very difficult if you're, if you're, an, if you're an investor, no matter how big or small you are, because there's so much information out there, and RRG will help you to narrow that down and, and, and show you that all in one picture. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll get into kind of how they work uh, more explicitly later on. But uh, you talked about sort of overcoming some of the troubles that uh, asset managers and fund managers uh, more specifically need to overcome. And I guess you you are aware of those problems uh, because of your career to date. So so let's, let's get into that now. Your career trajectory, I mean, is, is fascinating. I've been doing a bit of research before the call. So 
<laughs> you graduated from the Dutch Royal Military Academy in 1986, I believe, uh, before right. leaving the Air Force as a captain in 1990. So firstly, I guess the first question that pops into my head, to what, to what extent was, was that pre, uh, sort of period of time for you formative? Well, in general, I think, you know, serving in the defense forces, um, for everybody, I think what they learn and what they what they get as a um, character trait, maybe, is uh, discipline. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're taught discipline and, and to, I think for me, it was, it was discipline for sure, but also to be able to think and act in a structural manner. Uh, you know, you, you got these checklists. I, 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 I was an Air Force officer and the Air Force is, is renowned for their checklists. You know, if you want to fly a jet, there is a, there's a mile long checklist that you need to go through for all the security procedures that you think of this, that you think of that. Um, my job was, um, I, I did fly in jets, but I was never a pilot. I was just in the back seat. Uh, but my job was actually to shoot them out of the air, basically, if there were if there were no, our enemies. Um, so I was called, it was called a local air defense control officer, which is basically man or a radar screen and, um, you know, deciding whether someone was a friend or a foe. And you got a lot of systems and tactics to do that, uh, but also involved thinking clearly and in a structural way very rapidly. Um, so I think that that was, you know, from a from a military point of view, were the, the most character building uh, hmm. characteristics that I that I got there. Uh, and then obviously, because my my main study at the academy was economics. So, I mean, it's not entirely strange that I ended up in the financial world. Yeah. OK, so that was that was my next question, I suppose. Sort of how how do you go from the military to to yeah. finance and asset management? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I said, I my my. In, in the in the in the, the Dutch military academy, you had like basically had a war job, which for me was local air defense control, mm-hmm. and you have a peacetime job. And for me, that was basically running the logistics and the economics on a, on an airfield on an airbase. So during that study, that economic study, you learn basically it's a it's an economic study. You learn economics 101 and logistics and finance and how things work and all that kind of stuff, and like with every university or graduate study, you need to write a thesis to to actually graduate from the academy. And we're talking 1985, 86, um, early 87 times that this was happening. And at that time, the Dutch Air Force was in the process of buying F-16 jets to replace the NF-5 jets. And you can imagine that that is a, that is a big budget. You know, these are multi-million, mm-hmm. multi-million planes and you don't buy one plane, you buy like three or four squadrons. So that was, a, that was a very big operation. Now there is a law in the Netherlands that says that every governmental or semi-governmental body that engages in a foreign currency transaction, <clears throat> sorry, they need to buy that currency immediately. So at the time, the Dutch Air Force signed the contract to buy the F-16 jets. We needed to buy hundreds of millions of US dollars against guilders and have them in our, in our balance uh, on our account until these jets would be delivered. 
And not sure if you remember, but I do very well. At that time, the US dollar against the guilder was trading almost two guilders, 175, 180. And, and over that time, that value declined massively to, to just above one, 110, 120, which meant a, a serious loss on that US dollar position. And I looked at that and I was aware of that because I, I saw that happening and I thought there needs to be another way. And that led me to, um, to study options and currency forwards and currency derivatives to see if there would be smarter ways to still comply with the law, but not incur those losses. And that's how I started studying options. Uh, that's, I wrote my thesis on how the Dutch Air Force could use currency options to hedge themselves against the risk of all those US dollars um, in their position. And from that, I came to, at that time, at the same time, it's all coming together at that time. So mm. when I did that, late 80s, the um, options became a very popular investment instrument uh, in the Netherlands. And nobody knew about it, but I had just studied it. So. After I graduated from the academy in my free time, I continued to study options and I started teaching option classes to retail investors for a third party, right. uh, just out of fun because I was, I was intrigued. And that company was also involved in technical analysis. And so there, that's where my interest in technical analysis started, basically piggybacking off um, you know, the, the options that I was teaching people, you know, what's a call, what's a put, what's a spread, what's a straddle, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So, so that's how I ended up into the financial world, actually. Okay, yeah. So, and was your first role as portfolio manager for, so I've got down here a company called Equity and Law, which I believe are now part of AXA IM. That's right. It was, yeah, it's, um, it's a very, it was a very famous um, uh, UK-based life insurance company, actually. Yeah. Um, very famous because uh, Equity and Law uh, uh, competed and and won a few times the um, Whitbread around the world race sailing yacht sailing. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, I'm sure a lot of people in the UK still still are aware of that company. Um, yeah, because when I was teaching that, I got interested in technical analysis, got interested in the financial world, got interested in investing and trading. Um, and my contract with the Air Force ended in 1990. Um, I could have stayed on because I was a professional officer. So my contract was you know, indefinite. I could have stayed there until retirement. Uh, actually, I would have been retired now because my contract was until 55 and I'm now 57. So um, actually, uh, I'm now working overtime. <laughs> um, but, um, so that's how I got in, in touch with that world. And I, I saw an, an advertisement of equity and law. Uh, they were looking for a, um, for a junior portfolio manager. And you know, late 80s, early 90s, the, the wall came down. The, the Cold War was sort of non-existent anymore. There was not a lot going on. Defense was budget cuts, budget cuts, budget cuts. So you know, it, was, it was getting pretty boring, especially in my type of role as an economics officer so i uh, i decided to uh, to jump and, and go to the um into the business side i started working as a portfolio manager for equity and law 
Um, yeah, great. So that, that was indeed my first one in, in asset management. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that's a position, I guess, of some sort of seniority. I mean, you go straight into managing money. I mean, it was, um, yeah, but as a junior, I wasn't that. I wasn't that. I was handed out a portfolio immediately. So I had a okay. I had a senior senior guy. So I was uh, yeah. I I started out like like all of us, you know, started doing doing small things, um, learning on the job, basically uh, thinking about markets, uh, learning how things work, learning how the whole interaction between the buy and the sell side, the brokers and the asset management works. Um, you know, I obviously had a little bit of experience buying 100 shares for myself and, and 10 call options and 15 put options, you know, but at the, but the time when you when you do your first like 2 million gilded trade, that's kind of different, um, you know, so you got to learn the ropes a little bit. And, it, you know, at that time, it wasn't, there was, there were no algos, there were no computers who were doing all the executions. It was all phone-based. It was all, you know, haggling with various brokers uh, and that kind of stuff. So I learned a lot about how, how markets actually work um, because what, what, what a lot of computers are now doing at that time was done by a lot of people and, and by, you know, talking to people and see how they interact you learn a lot about how markets actually work. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I and mean, it was it was two years later then, I believe, that you, you take a role at Rubico. So that's that's the biggest asset manager in the Netherlands, I believe, and and a, yes. a massive company. That I'm yeah, sure I mean, they, they, yeah, they 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 were they were uh, definitely the biggest one in the Netherlands at that time, and they since then they grew tremendously. Well, at at um, equity and law, I, I mean, my love for charts and and quant and and technical based stuff um, was still there, obviously. Yeah. And I did, I did get a lot of room to use that when I was working for equity and law. So at that time, that was very progressive. So very happy for that. But I was still, it wasn't my full-time job. I wasn't full-time working with, with technicals and charts and, and, and reading the markets. Mm-hmm. And my job at Rubico was to become a, uh, a full-time buy-side technical analyst, quant technical analyst. Um, yes. And that's what I, that's why I made the, that's why I made the move because I could actually start doing full-time what I loved and liked. So, uh, so that was my main reason to go there. Yeah, absolutely. And I was kind of interested to pinpoint the, the, the time at which your passion for, for technical analysis and charts starts. Do you think it's there or, or do you think it was earlier on? I think it was earlier on. It was already when I started doing the, um, the, my thesis on, on options and I started people, you know, exact, again, what's a call, what's a put. Uh, obviously, you, you're all immediately also thinking, when are you going to buy calls? When are you going to buy puts or sell them, etc. So you need to have an opinion on the market. And quite rapidly, I found out that, you know, fundamental analysis is is great if you do it right. And, and there is a lot of information there. I, I still do think that there is a, a lot of information there. But options trading by nature um, especially at that time, because we it was three, six, and nine-month options that were traded on the EOE, European Options Exchange. You know, right now you've got options that are running for, for years, uh, but at that time it was relatively short-term trading. So you needed to make you needed to make calls on the move of stocks or underlying values um, for relatively short period of times. And I just couldn't figure out how to do that with fundamentals. And it, it, you know, it, it involved a lot more work. So I started teaching myself and using the resources at the, because I did it for a, for a third party company. I didn't do it on myself. I was hired by a third party company to, to teach those classes in the evening. And these guys were also, um, into technicals. So that's where I picked it up and that's where I started using it, 
uh, in those classes. So it, it was actually already when I was in the service, when I started to, uh, to work with charts and get my love for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Sort of a long-term love affair then. So you, exactly, um, yeah. so you, uh, you later, well, so you actually become head of technical analysis. So I guess that's where that's cemented and that's where it becomes, you know, your job title as it were for, for Radio yes. Bank International. So that was after they were acquired by Rubico in 97 yeah 97 yeah in the mid 90s um uh Rabobank and Rubico were already working quote unquote intimately together and then in 97 um Rabobank fully acquired Rubico and that, that at the same time they did a big reshuffle and reorg of the organization and I ended up uh on the trading floor of Rabo International in Utrecht and um uh so I basically that transferred me from the buy side to the mm. sell side because Robico was one of our clients, you know, when, 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 as an asset manager, when, when they, you know, the bank buys the asset manager, the asset manager sort of de facto becomes their client. So I was still doing this. I was still serving, servicing the same fund managers, but now from a sell side position rather than uh, on the same, you know, buy side team. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And then we were discussing before the call, cause I want to move us on to relative rotation graphs sort of as soon as possible. And, yeah. You, you mentioned before the call that that idea started to sort of germinate whilst still working for other businesses. So when, when exactly, if you could pinpoint it, did, did that? Yeah, happen? yeah. after Rabobank, I moved to, uh, first I had a, a stint at a small brokerage firm, uh, and then I moved to Kempenenko, which is a pretty big investment bank in the Netherlands with a lot of international contacts. And I got more, um, while I was at Rabobank, I did look at equities and equity indexes. But um, Rabobank was very well known for their fixed income part. So I looked a lot at, at boon futures and gilts and treasuries and all that kind of currencies. Mm. Um, so only when I started working at Kempen, um, my job was uh, more equity related, stock market related. And basically the clientele were professional fund managers who were overlooking European portfolios. So my universe uh, was roughly the, uh, the, the European stock market, say the stocks 600 index. Yeah. And at that time, it had 18 sectors. And um, so I needed to cover that. And um, I give my view and, 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 and trading ideas and investment ideas and, and business cases for overweighting and underweighting um, sectors to those guys. Okay, so I, I think this is a question, actually, I think I read it on your website. Often the most frequent question you're asked is, how do you get the idea for relative rotation graphs? So yeah. Was it the need to satisfy those fund managers, the people that you were kind of showing ideas yeah. to? Yeah, to a great extent, yes. Um, because first of all, what we need to what we need to realize is that almost all, well, a lot, if not all of these portfolio managers, the professional ones, basically have one job, and that is to outperform a benchmark that they're given. You know, so if you are portfolio manager for a European large cap fund, then your job is to outperform, say, the uh, MSCI Europe or the Stocks uh, Europe Index. That means, and, and these funds are generally too large to have very big cash positions. And very often their uh, restrictions and the guidelines of the fund don't even allow for that. You know, a lot of these funds have restrictions that there should be no more than 5% cash in that portfolio. So they're all, they need to be always invested. So even if the fund manager thinks that the market's going to tank, 
he still needs to be invested. He can go 5% cash. So if the market goes down, he is sure that he goes down. So his job is to outperform the benchmark. So if that's the story where, you know, the benchmark goes down 10% and your fund goes down 5%, you're a hero because you've, you've beaten the benchmark by 5%. And that means that there is basically only one tool in the technical sphere that they can use, and that's relative strength because they always need to make the decision security A or security B, which mm -hmm. one is going up fastest or which one is going down slowest. So that meant relative strength. So all my work was based around relative strength. I did a lot of relative strength analysis. And as you said, was there a way that these fund managers influenced me? Yeah, because First of all, it's very difficult to get a hold of these guys. It's a lot of uh, talking to voicemail uh, at that time, and now it's emails and stuff and reports. But you know, it's very hard for people to read reports because because there are so many. So when you had written a note or a report, you would have to call all these guys to basically pitch your idea and make them trade with you because that's when you know that's when the money comes in for the bank when they trade with you. The report goes out for free. My call is for free, but they pay when they give me a trade. Um, so what I found out is that, as I said, you talk a lot to voicemail and then, you know, it's very hard to, to get your point across. So you have, you have a pitch prepared and you, 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 you repeat the same story over and over again. Um, but on the occasion when you were talking to someone, they were all very, always very, very busy. So it's like, all right, all right. So I, I had, let's say I had prepared um, a piece on, uh, let's say materials. Materials are doing very nicely and I'm gonna, going to pitch a few material stocks and I'm gonna tell them that they need to uh, get rid of consumer staples. So that was my pitch. I had that story, a few names to talk about. Yeah, you start calling. Then you get someone on the line and say, oh, Julius, Julius, stop, stop, stop. Uh, this week is technology week. Um, I've got Goldman Sachs coming over. There is a JP Morgan conference. Uh, what are your best five picks in technology? And obviously, you know, because if you have a 600 stock universe, you had not prepared technology in depth. So you could give three words, but it wasn't really where the action was going on. Um, but that's what I wanted to know. So I needed to, to get a way to show them or tell them where they needed to pay attention. And I never forget, I had, we had a, you know, we had courses, sales courses and, and speaking courses and all that kind of stuff um, from time to time, just to train the sales force and the analysts were semi salespeople. So we had a, we had a course by, um, it was a guy from Scotland, UK, former investment banker. And he came to, 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 to teach us a course on, on selling techniques and stuff. And especially also, you know, how you deal with all those voicemails. And I, I'm not sure if I can actually repeat the accent, but it was like, <clears throat> so what, what is the most, and, most important fact when you, when you make that 10, 20 second pitch? And, and his answer was like, you got to make the fact sizzle. I think it's, it's, it's 30 years ago that I took that course. I never forgot that phrase. You got to make the facts sizzle. <laughs> Basically, you know, internet wasn't existing. You know, all these websites weren't there. It was these reports, but it's basically your clickbait headline on an article on a website. 
you yeah. know, you want to get as much eyeballs on your piece. You need to have a title that attracts people to it. So you've got to make the fact sizzle. So basically having a unique selling point and because it's a very competitive world. So how, how do you get that unique selling point? And, you know, as I said, I was working with technical analysis and I, I, I tried to answer these questions on what are your best five stocks? So I, I was also creating those, um, those lists and I needed a way to rank my universe to be able to answer that question. What are your best five stocks? What are your best five sectors? So I developed uh, a ranking methodology, which is now known as the JDK RS ratio, which is basically the horizontal axis on the relative rotation graph. Um, that was the first, the first element, the first bit that was developed. And, um, and I used that to answer those questions. And um, that worked pretty good. Uh, and, and then come, I think it was 2000, 2001, when that tech bubble peaked, NASDAQ was 4,000 uh, something. Yeah. Um, and then it started to come off and it started to come off rapidly. And I, another anecdote is that at that time, I got an email from an Italian hedge fund guy and he he said to me um this time your system didn't work so well because you know relative strength you you write trends so there is the, the algorithm is is kind of trend following there are some trend following elements in there and you need the data before it's being picked up by the algorithm um so it takes a little bit of time before it picks up so especially when it's a very steep drop when that picked up so you know um on that ranking order the stuff that's been doing really well before it drops out of your top five or top 10 has already lost quite a bit of value uh, in price terms and in relative terms before they basically drop out of your top 10. So I thought, well, I hate to admit it, but the guy is sort of right. Um, you know, it didn't really work. It didn't pick that up enough. So I started playing around with other metrics that we have in technical analysis, um, uh, which is rate of change, which is momentum. and um, just like with the RS ratio, the problem with all that stuff is that they are in essence not comparable. What, what a lot of people do when they look at relative strength, they draw one of these graphs where they anchor all the series six months back or a year back or three months back. And then you can see what has done very well over that period. But yeah. when there is a trend change during that period, it's, it's hard, if not impossible, to actually pick that up. And the RS ratio is trying to pick up those trends. And there is a variety of trends, longer term, shorter term, to pick that up and culminate that into one number that is comparable across all the elements in the universe. And that's what, that was the RS ratio. That was my ranking mechanism, which was, as the Italian guy said, sometimes too late. So then I started to play around with that rate of change metric. And um, same problem there, not comparable across the universe, uh, just like any other relative strength metric. So I, I ran that through the same algorithm as I've been using for the RS ratio, which brings it, uh, which makes it all comparable. Uh, and then I had two metrics and it was all still tabled. Um, you know, there was no RRG at that time. It was just a table, a table with numbers. And I could, I could plot those on a graph because you, you could go back in history and, and read those numbers. So I had two lines on a graph and then you know, sometimes you just, you have an hour or you, you, you play around and you try to do something differently. And I, because tables are, 
at least in my opinion, very boring to look at and very difficult to read because the you know the the, the information that you get out of those numbers doesn't really pop. It doesn't yeah. immediately tell you a story. So I was I was looking for ways to um, to visualize those numbers, and I was literally playing with Excel and graphical packages to, um, uh, to, to to show that information in a different way. And then I actually, you know, popped on, on, a, on a scatter plot and there were all these dots that were just single dots at the time. What's that? Start thinking about it because when you first see it, it's like, hmm, what is that? What am I actually looking at? Yeah. And, um, you know, so I had to define that, figured it out started working with it and I thought okay this is a this is a snapshot in time but how would that be when um, if uh, because you want to know where it's moving because you could clearly see the spreading of the of the elements over that scatter plot but how is it actually moving and I started plotting historical dots and, and you know putting that together that by the way this was like Visual Basic for application, VBA, Spaghetti Goat in Excel, you know, a spreadsheet like a mile long. Uh, you know, you were the only one that could read that sheet. Um, but I, it started to dawn on me that these little dots were actually moving in a clockwise fashion around that benchmark, around the center of that chart. Um, and that's that's basically how RRGs came to life and, and you know, gave me a way to make my fact sizzle, to actually bring those investors a unique view that nobody else had um, and give them information that would otherwise be very hard for them to um, to actually uh, get and, and see in one image. Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, I think, well, we've done a perfect job, I suppose, of explaining kind of why they came into being, the problems that they've solved. Uh, we talked about the visualization, but I wonder whether we can explain and clarify for someone that's never seen a relative rotation graph, what it looks like. And particularly I'm thinking about the four quadrants. So yeah. how those four quadrants work to show the rotation in the instruments. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite uh, interesting to, uh, to have a podcast and, and two voices <laughs> talk about something that is super visual. Yeah. I was <laughs> going to say like... that podcast, not, not the, uh, not the perfect medium for this. We don't, we, we don't, we best. don't, we don't, yeah, no, no, we don't have the, uh, we don't have the image uh, with the words, but um, okay. So as I said, the, the RS ratio, which is the, uh, the most important metric uh, basically shows our, our captures trends and relative strength. Uh, high values are good, low values are bad. That's basically how you read that. Yeah. Then you have the rate of change of that trend. Uh, and that is plotted on the vertical axis. And with those two values, so when you have a security, let's stick with sector. You can do it for everything, but let's stick with sectors for, for ease of uh, understanding. Mm -hmm. um, so when you have a sector that's in the, so that, that scatter plot is divided in four quadrants. And in the top right, so you have high values on the RS ratio and you have high values on the RS momentum. Those are the sectors that are in a relative uptrend versus the benchmark. And that uptrend is still being pushed higher by strong momentum. Yeah. Now we all know in technical analysis that momentum or rate of change is a leading indicator. Before anything else, rate of change will start to flatten and roll over. That's when that sector moves into the lower right hand of that scatter plot, which is the weakening quadrant. 
what you find there is still in a relative uptrend versus the benchmark, but it's losing power. You know, in the beginning, a trend is very steep and then it starts to, to roll over. Da, da, da. And if that loss of power continues, eventually the sector will rotate into the lower left-hand quadrant, which is the lagging quadrant. What you find there are sectors that are in a relative downtrend versus the benchmark. And that downtrend is still being pushed further down by weak momentum. Yeah. And then over time, just like you know, the rollover, the first thing that will pick up is momentum because the steepness of that downtrend will diminish, it will flatten out. And that's when your momentum start to pick up and it will curl up and it will rotate into the top left-hand quadrant, which is the improving quadrant. And the, the sectors that you'll find there are still in a relative downtrend, but they are improving. And if that improvement continues, they will eventually be pushed back into the leading quadrant again. And that's where you get that rotational um, uh, characteristic of markets and sectors and stocks and whatever have you. And, and when I had my first spaghetti uh, hocus pocus chart on my screen, that was the first time I was sort of a aha moment for me where I say, hey, everybody's always talking about sector rotation. But this shows you that they are actually rotating and they're rotating in a clockwise fashion. But that was pretty cool, actually. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So I'll take this point, I suppose, to uh, push people uh, in the direction of the relative rotation graph website, because there are some really nice visualizations on there. We will also uh, be including some images on the Opto website when we publish a respective article along with this interview. So people will be able to see it there. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll put a link in the episode description, but it is fascinating. And particularly when uh, you use sort of motion graphics and video to, to show how the instruments are yeah. rotating clockwise. Yeah, that, I mean. yeah, that's another thing because in the beginning it was all static. It was yeah. all just, you know, you know, it was a static image. That's an also is a good anecdote because um, one of the first users of relative rotation graphs was Fidelity Investments in Boston mm -hmm. and in the UK actually. And um, the guy in, in Boston that I, that I uh, spoke to is Dave Keller. And he's now a colleague of mine at stockcharts.com. At that time, he was managing director of technical analysis of research with Fidelity. And basically he was one of my clients when I was at Kempen. So I, I spoke to Dave every now and then on, you know, what do you think of the markets? What's going on? And I had that, I had in my report that RRG was the, was the last page of my report. Um, uh, and it showed the, the most recent observation and the previous with only, you know, those two dots connected per sector. And, uh, and I was talking to Dave about it. And he said, you know what? I always, I print out the last page of a report. I said, why are you doing that? He said, well, you know, then I have a whole stack. And you remember when you were at school and when you were born and you had your note blocks where you would, where you would draw a little puppet with a hat <laughs> and a body and arms and two feet at the bottom of the page. And then on the next page, you would draw the same puppet, but now the feet were a little different and the arms were a little different. Yeah. And on the other page, and then when you, when you just like, with those pages, that, that little image started to walk. You know that? Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. 
that's what he did with those charts. He just like, and then they start to rotate. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think, wow, that is super cool. So then I started programming it out to make it actually um, dynamic. And, and that's what eventually became relative rotation graphs as they are available now on those various systems uh, where you can actually see the dynamic in action and you see the rotation over time. And then it, then it becomes, then it's really interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, absolutely. So I guess the next question that follows from, for me then is not to just look at the positives and, and obviously what these uh, unique trading tools can, can show you, but also to think about limitations is probably the wrong word, but they can't show you everything. They can't give you ready-made yep. trading or investment ideas. So what, what, can't they show us? They don't show you price. Yeah, it's all relative, so they don't show you price. And I've literally yesterday answered a question from a user um, who said, um, "How do I determine my entry and exit prices using an RRG?" And the answer is very short: you can't, yeah. because there is so much. There, it's it's first of all, it's all relative. So there, they are all interacting, and you can compare everything with everything, not only with the benchmark, but also, you know, the sectors or the stocks that you're watching, uh, comparing with each other, and that means that there are so many variables at in play um, because the relative position of something can change, even if the price of itself doesn't change. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Um, if everything else moves and that particular sector doesn't change in price, it will still move on a relative basis. So it's, it's very difficult to, to pit, well, it's impossible to pinpoint entry and exit points using an RRG. So I always tell people that RRG are better or should not be used as a standalone tool. I, first of all, I don't believe in standalone tools, full stop. I don't believe there's one single one single technique or one single thing that, that will give you all the answers. So what RRG does is it's primarily a visualization and it will give you insights that you cannot get using other types of charts or indicators. So that's where the added value is coming from. Yeah, that, information, that information you need to then bring into your workflow or bring into, if you are very rigorous, you know, um, systematic trading orientated investor, then you need to bring that into your workflow and into your, basically into your rules. Um, and then it works, but just using RRG as a standalone tool and say, this is my price target and here's my stop loss, that ain't gonna work. Yeah, absolutely. It's a piece of the puzzle rather than the whole puzzle. That makes, I yes. mean, makes complete sense. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, just just before we move on to uh, an article and, and a possible use case, actually, that I, I read about on stockcharts.com, uh, I just wanted to cover off this idea that we, we've talked about relative strength, but I'm conscious that a lot of our listeners will be familiar with RSI. Uh, and I guess it's it's important to differentiate between the two, right? Extremely important. Very good. Glad you're asking that, because that is indeed um, a mix up and a confusion that very often happens. RSI, obviously, as well as Wilder's RSI, is the is Wells Wilder's Relative Strength Index. And that is a metric that's an indicator that only looks at that single security. So it just looks at that time series. And it pretty much uh, tells you whether 
that security has been trending upward or downward. And you know, you, you can read it like overbought, oversold, etc. But RRGs, RRGs are based on, I think the best description is what's called comparative relative strength. So it always involves multiple securities. You're comparing A with B, A with C, B with C, A with D, C with D, B with D, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you're comparing many, many different combinations. Um, so that is the biggest uh, thing. And an RSI will tell you something about that particular security. A relative strength line will will help you decide between security A or security B. Great. Okay. Important distinction then. So I wanted to finish, I guess, the main body of the interview by, by talking through some examples that hopefully, I guess, start to root the concept of relative rotation graphs in some sort of real life uh, examples and render, render it a little bit less uh, abstract, I suppose. So yeah. I read through your recent piece on seasonality on stockcharts.com. Yeah. Uh, the piece um, suggested that although we gain some insight from seasonality, ultimately reality rules. So I believe that was that was part of the headline. So yes. firstly, before we move on to RRGs and how they relate to this topic, to what extent should investors read into seasonal trends, do you think? Well, I, I, I started using seasonality more. I, I always was interested in seasonality. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I sort of you know when you when you work with something and it and then you park it and you forget about it and then at some stage you bring it back up that happened with seasonality for me because seasonality is is nothing else than than looking back over time and taking the average uh performance or outperformance underperformance of a sector or piece of the market during the course of the year you know i think that you know sell in may and go away but remember to come back in september that's probably the most well known you know, um, seasonality strategy or whatever. Um, you can do that for sectors. You can you can actually do it for individual stocks. Although I I I I I don't think that's helpful because single stocks have too many single stock risks. So I think that seasonality is something that you should do for market indexes or groups or or sectors, as I do it in that article that you um, that that you refer to. I actually do that um, every month. Um, I, I have a, uh, a weekly show on stockcharts.com called Sector Spotlight. And um, uh, it's, uh, it's every Tuesday, 30 minutes. But every, every last Tuesday before the new month, I take a look at seasonality for the next month. So yep. I, I, I take a look at the, at the season. What, what can we expect from seasonality? And the reason I started to do that is because RRGs, relative rotation graphs, they show you what's in favor and out of favor. They show you that rotation. And basically that's what seasonality also does. It shows you over the course of the year, what's in favor and out of favor. So you, you can see some sort. And, and what I like about seasonality, that it gives you a sense of forward looking information because we, we can now say that the, you know, the, the, the expectation for, uh, seasonal performance going into the new year is that, you know, communication services and technology usually have a pretty good uh, month of, uh, of January. So then I wanted to combine that with RRGs because RRGs are showing you what is actually happening at this point in time. Yeah. So what I then do is I take the information from the seasonality 
which gives me the average or the outlook for a sector per month. And I overlay that with my RRIG and say, hey, um, this sector is usually doing very good. If I then see that the tail on the RRG is moving in the right direction, in a positive direction, I have two pieces of information that are telling me this looks good from a seasonal point of view. It's a strong month or a strong period for that sector and the, the tail. So it's actually also um, sort of uh, respecting that seasonal pattern, that seasonal trend. And that's how I try to marry those two. And um, when I was writing that article this week, I, I was struggling because the, the sectors that are actually you know, doing pretty good, which is communication services, technology, uh, and, uh, and, and healthcare, they were actually uh, uh, high expectations, but the tails for those sectors are not fantastic. Yeah. And then, because when, it, when something is very low, you also have information, you know, because the, if the outperformance is like 30 or 40%, that means that the sector is underperforming 70 or 60% of the time, which is also information. So a weak seasonal expectation for this month is, is for materials and energy and industrials. And of course, right now, these three sectors are doing really, really well. So they're not matching the seasonal pattern. So, you know, when they confuse, I, and that's, that's where the title is coming from, um, seasonality is nice when it helps you, but reality rules, price, actual price, actual movement is what's happening right now. And, and I think that that's very important for people to understand that you've got to deal with the price that's currency on the current, currently on your screen and not what should be there based on seasonality. Um, which basically reminds me of a nice phrase of Ralph Acampora, a very famous technical analyst in the US, um, in a discussion with fundamental people. Um, uh, you know, so he was in a discussion where people basically questioned technical analysis, say, what is, what is real, what is real about technical analysis? It's all about, you know, breakouts, blah, 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 trends, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then he counter, Counter the question. So, what is real in fundamental analysis? Well, it's the company, etc. And then he said, "You know what? Earnings are an estimate. Price is fact. That's on your screen. That's what you trade. The price is derived based on earnings expectations. Your earnings are nothing more than expectations. The yeah. price is a fact." And that was the end of the discussion. And I really like that one because it is actually true. I mean, it's a bit polarized and I, I don't want to put it that harsh and that, you know, I, I really like working with fundamental information and fundamental guys, but yeah. it is what it is. I mean, you know, it's all based on expectations and, you know, in reality, price is fact, but what we make out of it is our expectation based on what that price is doing. So, you know, there is a... Um, you know, a little bit of banter going on there, but um, what I'm trying to do here is to, to point out that seasonality can help you, but you always have to remember that the price, the actual price, and when you want to go to you know, terms of RRG, the actual rotation, that's yeah. what you have to deal with right now. And if seasonality helps you, it can help you confirm or deny what you see. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, just invest based on seasonal patterns. No, 
no, absolutely. I think that's why it resonated with me. I mean, maybe we're all thinking about seasonal trends towards the beginning and the start of a new year anyway, but how you're able to sort of use RRGs to, yeah, yeah. to sort of not disprove, <laughs> but get a better picture of what might happen and to sort of counteract yeah. some sort of seasonal adages. Yeah. And yeah, so what we'll do is we'll put a link to that uh, that article in the episode description as well. So people can, people oh, cool. can have a read yeah. on stockcharts.com. Um, sure. So one question before we move on to our, our final quick fire question round is we tackle a lot of uh, themes on Opto. So we talk about thematic investing and trading. Um, and, yes. uh, you know, when I hear about a new uh, tool, I'm, I guess I'm thinking about it in that prism. Can it be related to themes and thematics? So could you use relative rotation graphs to compare performance between stock market themes? Yes. <laughs> and then That's a very follow- short answer. No, I was, <laughs> I was joking. <laughs> yeah, you've moved on to the quick fire question round too early. No. Um, <laughs> no, is yes, that something course- you've tested? I have not. I'm in the process. I'm, I'm putting together the, um, uh, you guys gave me a big list of, uh, of themes that you're looking at. Um, so I'm actually putting together the RRGs, uh, prepping the data for that. But in essence, it's the same as with sectors. I mean, I, you know, RRGs are very often um, related to sectors, which is where it all began. But I do RRGs on asset classes. So comparing stocks with bonds, with high yield, with corporate bonds, with commodities. I use RRGs to uh, compare different subgroups in commodities. I use RRGs for different currencies. I use RRGs for different maturities on the yield curve. I use RRGs to compare um, uh, value and growth stocks. I use RRGs to, uh, to distinguish between small caps, mid caps, large caps. So there is no reason why we could not create an RRG and look at it. Uh, based on various themes. It's just a different way of slicing and dicing the market. And RRG is perfectly capable of uh, visualizing that way of slicing that market into uh, smaller pieces, uh, in this case, teams. So yes, it can be done. Perfect. Okay. Well, um, so I did mention our quickfire question round, but one thing that uh, I want to get in before the end of the interview um, is, I guess, up until now, RRGs, relative rotation graphs, have been typically the domain of institutions, almost exclusively, I suppose, you know, global asset managers and the like. So but for the first time, retail and independent traders, people, a lot of the people listening in will be of that group, will be yeah. able to leverage the tool technology through a new product that is going to yeah. be available on the CMC Markets platform. So can you just give us a quick sort of elevator pitch, a couple of lines on what this new product is and what it's called? Uh, it's called RRG UK Momentum Plus. Uh, and and what it does, it um, it takes the FTSE 350 as its universe, as its pool of possibilities, and using uh, RRG in combination with some other rules, we are picking ten names out of that pool every quarter, of which, uh, and we have obviously back tested that. Uh, we can we can say that the odds are for them to um, to move strongly in favor uh, of the, uh, the the FTSE 100 index, which is used as the benchmark. So we're actually we're picking a subset out of the FTSE 350, uh, of which we expect momentum to be stronger than that of the FTSE 100. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well that's really exciting. So uh, everyone listening in uh, can actually go ahead and trade that product now just by searching RRG in the CMC Markets platform. But what we're going to do is we're going to have uh, an episode next week 
with Judas's uh, sort of co-founder of the product, Trevor Neal. He's been on the podcast before. Uh, Ed yep. will be giving that interview, uh, and that will be exclusively on the product uh, and how it works. So that's so that's one to look out for next week. So finally, our, our, our long-awaited quick-fire question round. So this is kind of a light-hearted way to end the episode. We do it with all our guests, um, but feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even yeah. one word. Firstly, what is the top mistake investors make? I'd say impatience. Yeah. Good. Everything needs to go very, very fast and quick. Yes. Okay. Question two, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read any specific publishers, for example? Uh, not, not, I, I, I read a lot on the Bloomberg website uh, because I have it available and, and my Refinitiv uh, and, and then obviously, um, I don't know, Google News. I, I, I consume a lot of news and stuff, but only after the fact. I, I look a lot at charts and I do that on my on the systems that I have available. So I don't have a, a very like one yeah. particular source that I always go to. Yeah. Okay. So what is the most memorable moment from your career today, if you could pick just one? There's a few, but if I have to pick one and relating it to where I am right now, I'd say that that is a meeting with the head of graphics of Bloomberg in Frankfurt at the end of 2006, when we agreed to get relative rotation graphs on the Bloomberg terminal. Yeah, great. Um, okay, so question four, this is this is a tricky one, but let's see what you say. A top tip for your younger self. Oh, that was easy. Okay. Don't, don't be afraid to think out of the box. Uh, I was maybe that's also an, an inheritance 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 of yep. my military career where you were forced to to stay in the box basically yep. uh, follow the rules and follow the rule set and um, in my financial career and my analyst career I, I I needed to learn to think out of the box and I think um, you know for my younger self I I think I would have loved to uh, to be able to do that a little bit earlier on or don't be would not have been afraid to think out of the box yeah yeah absolutely solid advice okay so our last question is essentially the the opto question this is something that we we look to do on opto we talk to the people that are looking to outperform traditional benchmarks so what is an investor's best source of alpha if you had to narrow it down to one thing i think the one thing um that i think is the ability and the guts and the um, trust in yourself to to your to use your own ability to judge and think. Um, now let me let me give a little bit of context to that because you know Opto and and I myself we're all in the business of providing information, providing people with information, and and I think that is very good. There are many very good sources of information, but use them as that use them as a source of information don't rely on it there are many people who want you to believe that their method their course their their product their whatever is the sole single holy grail in finance that doesn't exist rrg is not the holy grail it's not the ultimate product the rrg uk momentum plus basket is not the holy grail and the only thing that you'd ever buy but it will be it will help you to build a portfolio it can be a part of your portfolio so use the information that is out there 
but don't rely on it. Just keep thinking for yourself. You, you, you got a brain, use it. Yeah, perfect. Okay, a nice uh, nice message to end on then. So I guess that leaves me to say, because I'm conscious I've, I've taken up a lot of your time this afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Julius. It's been a real pleasure. You're more than welcome, Hayden, and looking forward to do it again. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.